pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can proclaim that all of your word is useful and profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for exhorting, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Our Lord, we know that our time together is very dependent upon you. Our entire life is dependent upon you. Just as we so fiercely clung to you and your work on the cross for our salvation, so it is only in complete dependence upon you do we live rightly, can we think rightly. And Lord, we pray for the work of your spirit to help us to see you in in all of your glory that we see uh, displayed in this passage, uh, but also, too, that you might uh, work in our hearts as to what does it mean to us, how are we to re- respond to you, and how we are, are we to uh, love you and uh, walk with you more deeply as a result. So we ask that you would uh, do that in me and in all of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Father's Day, eh? Oh. Now you're thinking, surely you can't make a Father's Day sermon out of it. And I'm not going to for the record, because I would really need to be clutching at straws to try and make that connection. But remember that day, for those who are fathers, the very first day you found out you're going to be a dad. Now, for some people it was utter panic. But others are like, this is it. I have reached it. This is the, the pinnacle. This is going to be wonderful. You put your little head back. You dream and you have this wonderful idea of all the beautiful, glorious things that are going to be there. And you know when you do those things, you kind of realise and you picture all of the the good things and there's a lot of things you leave out of it. You might have your head back and you imagine what fatherhood's going to look something like that. (laughs) Obviously I didn't spend a great deal of time in Photoshop putting Miller's head there on a St Kilda player. (laughs) I haven't even chained Miller that one yet. But it doesn't take long till you realise that you're perfect. Everything leads to happiness and joy experience isn't the way it all is. Now, in saying that, I'm not saying that you're wrong to have that initial idea that fatherhood is wonderful and fantastic, but it is. It really is. But sometimes, with not just with fatherhood, but various things so we can all relate to this, we picture how something's going to be and we have really, really unrealistic expectations of what something's going to be like. We may have come to the right conclusion that whatever it is that we're thinking about is good and it's going to be wonderful, but we have unrealistic expectations because we tend to centre our thoughts around the bits that we think we're going to enjoy the most and we're going to benefit from the most. And when we have wrong expectations... It usually sets ourselves up for, for disappointment, doesn't it? Because reality doesn't always meet those expectations. Or we get frustrated. And it would appear as we've gone through the book of Exodus so far that the Israelites had some pretty unrealistic expectations of what it would be like to be a saved people living in relationship with God. We're almost halfway through the book of Exodus. There's 40 chapters in Exodus for the record. But I can tell you we're past the halfway mark in terms of the preaching series. We're up to number 13 out of 22. Now you could be tempted to think that after chapters 12 to 14 it should be all over. I mean the book's called Exodus. 
You know, usually when you watch a movie, the main big successful act happens right at the end. It's all over. Everyone lives happily ever after. Because chapters 12 to 14, we see a people who have been in slavery in Egypt for 400 years. God not only brings them out of Egypt, but miraculously provides for them, bringing them through the Red Sea and completely destroys the, the Egyptians who are there in pursuit after them. Good news. Done deal. It's all done. God saved them happily ever after. Sweet dreams forevermore. But it's not story over, is it? Sometimes we might have the unrealistic expectation that if God has done this mighty great act of saving them from all these things, then clearly the expectation is for everything further on, which is going to be minor by comparison, God's going to take away every single one of their troubles. Is that a fair expectation? If God saves you from the big things, does that mean that after that we should expect everything's going to be easy? There's never going to be hardship. We've often referred to Exodus as being the gospel of the Old Testament. That it, the gospel, that is, the, the good news. Is it good news? I mean, for it to be good news, certainly they need to be saved from something which is bad, to be taken out of being treated ruthlessly as slave for 400 years. Tick, that's good, they're out of something bad. But if the good news to be truly good news, they need to not only be brought out of something which was bad, they actually need to be brought to something which was better. However, the question they keep asking is, as they come across different things that they seem don't fit their expectations, last week we saw them three times complaining, God, what are you doing with us? Twice we haven't got water. Twice, once we haven't got food. And they're asking, how is this better? Throughout the entire experience, they keep saying, we were better off back in Egypt. Which we know very well, that was not the case. They were not better off back in Egypt. Now this week, the Amalekites come in an unprovoked attack against them. And they're thinking once again, is this what it's supposed to look like? Living in relationship with the God who saved us, is this the type of saving we should expect? Have we been saved to something better? And really, they've got two options at this point. Either they have been saved to something better, or their expectations of what the better is, is very unrealistic. Now, as troubles come up, we need to ask, is God failing to save and to care for a people that he has saved? Or have we come up with wrong expectations? So here's an outline of where we're headed this morning. Problems come to the saved. If that's a surprise, then you haven't lived very long as a Christian. In verses 10 to 13, God provides for the saved. And in verses 14 to 16, the saved need to remember. And then we kind of wrap up the so what, where we actually think, hang on, this actually does have some application to us today. But as we begin in the passage, we get introduced to Amalek, who seems to be unprovoked, and we're not just talking about an individual, but the descendants of Amalek come and wage war against the Israelites. Who was this Amalek fella? Well, he's actually the grandson of Esau. So usually you talk about the descendants of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Jacob and Esau were twins. Jacob was the sneaky one, took the birthright and all that stuff. And Esau, he is the grandson 
of Esau. And no, this details did not actually come from Ancestry.com. That was me being bored and playing on the internet. But wherever you see the Amalekites come onto the scene in the Bible, they're never really portrayed in a positive way. They're usually either opposing God's people or trying to stand in the way of what what God has declared to be his plans. The first occasion we see that is in Genesis 14, verse 7. But here in Exodus 17, it seems this attack is totally unprovoked. And not only that, it was an event which the Israelites remembered very clearly. We've seen Deuteronomy 25. Moses says, Remember what Amalek did to you on the day you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary, cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. So it seems they're very much an opportunistic attack, not only at a time when they were really weak and at their lowest points. Now remember, these guys have been treated ruthlessly as saints of Egypt for 400 years. They've just got through the Red Sea. They're not going to have a, a greatly formed army. They're not going to have a big accumulation of weapons. So they're at a moment of weakness. And not only are they at a moment of weakness, it says, and they came and got those who were lagging at the back. In other words, going at the easy and most... Um, Vulnerable is where they take their attack, which could be the, the mothers and the children, the elderly or those who are injured, and try to pick them off that way. But in response to this attack, we're told here what Moses does. He says to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I'll stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. You can imagine Joshua when he first hears that and think, Okay, so we go do the fight and stuff and you're just going to stand on top of a hill with you and take your little staff up there with you. But it's an interesting thing to call upon Joshua and say, go and gather some men. Remember, they're not going to have an army. When you've been serving ruthlessly as slaves, you haven't got time to build an army. Pharaoh would have been very sure to make sure they didn't accumulate or stockpile weapons. So when he says go and choose your men, he's not saying, now from the abundant army that we have, select your best men. It's probably more a case of find anyone who might be possible, possibly able to help out on this occasion. But some people ask a question here. Is Moses just doing his own thing now? Like we've seen Moses do some pretty spectacular things, but usually we've seen God has told him to do them. And some question, has Moses decided now things have been going pretty good, that he can just act on his own, do whatever he likes, bring his little magic staff with him and whatever he wants is going to happen? Well, the truth is the passage doesn't tell us whether or not God told him or God directed him in such a way. He may have, may not have. But the indications we get from verses 14 to 16 is that the attack against the Amalekites was very much God's will for the Israelites to respond in that way. Now, if if Amalek was an unfamiliar name, there's another name mentioned here that's far from unfamiliar. Joshua. Joshua who becomes um, the, uh, the one who successor, follows on after Moses, and is the one who leads them in their conquest into the promised land. Matter of fact, at this point in time, of all the people who are alive... He's only one of two who actually get to enter into the promised land. Again, we wish we had a few more details as to why Moses says tomorrow. 
We don't know whether or not the armies had come to him and says, if you don't surrender by tomorrow, we're coming and taking all your stuff. We don't know what the conditions are. Or if he's just thinking we need some time to get some men together. But what happens that tomorrow, Moses goes up on his hill with the staff of God. Now there's nothing spectacular about the staff. It's the own staff he's been using for his farming life. But it's the staff where in that encounter with God back in Exodus chapter 4, God says, you go take that. That'll be the sign that I use as I do my signs and wonders amongst the people that they may know that I am the Lord. It's the same staff that's done many things in Egypt. It's the same staff that God has been pleased to use as a sign of his presence to open up the Red Sea that the Israelites may pass through. That is what Moses is taking up to the hill. Joshua, on the other hand, trusts Moses enough and even more so trusts the God of Moses enough to go out and put together a people to go and fight against the Amalekites. Imagine from a human standpoint, that would be a pretty daunting thing. You think, here's a proper army. We're not at our best. We're not ready. The natural inclination is, let's just run and get out of here. But he trusts that God has something bigger in mind and he does exactly as he's instructed. And if future events are an indication about Joshua, remember, he's the one who goes out, spying the land, comes back and says, yeah, it's all good. Um, he's a man who's willing to trust God, that he can do all that he promises and sets out to do. So problems do come to the saved. But in verses 10 to 13, God also provides for the saved. As it turns out, Joshua and the men that he gathers, they do go out and they fight the Amalekites. And while they're fighting, Moses, Aaron and Hur and the staff of God go up onto the hill. Now, at this point in time, you'd expect to see a little bit of a detail about what's going on in the battle. But you hear absolutely nothing by way of description of how the battle's being fought, what's being done to, ad- to advance for one country or the other. All of the focus is up on the hill. Because the battle that is taking place here is not going forward because of what the Amalekites are doing or because of what Joshua is doing. The battle is either going forward or backwards based on what's happening on that hill and what we see here represented by Moses. As the battle goes on, as it says, as Moses' hand was raised, the Israelites prevailed. When his hand went down, the Amalekites prevailed. Now, there's no sort of magic to say putting his hand up does one thing or another. You see the connection in verse 16 of the hand that went to the throne of God. So as Moses' hand was raised, there was the very presence of the throne of God. There was a visible sign of God's presence fighting through his people. And that was what brought about uh, the advancement of the Israelites, not because of any tactical things done on behalf of Joshua. It's very clear, not only from the events on the hill, but from all that we see, that it is God who is giving the victory. But as his hands begin to get tired, Aaron and her think, we've got to keep his hands up. They see that when, when his, hand, his hand is raised, things are going forward. Because they know only by the power of God is there any chance there will be victory. And probably too for the men who are fighting, 
they would have been able to see up in the hill. They probably would have seen the correlation too between as things happen, are happening when Moses' hand is raised. And the result of keeping his hands raised, what a fun job that would have been, holding some bloke's hands up till the end of the day. The end result, verse 13, Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Now, if you remember back to chapter 13, verse 17, we see the reasons why God didn't lead the Israelites on the most direct route to the promised land. The most direct route was to head up the top and go, go along the water. But he says, I would not send them that way in case they would come across the Philistines, enter into war, and they might return to Egypt. In other words, God's very own statement is, these guys are not ready for war. They haven't got what it takes. They're not prepared. They're not able to do it. It's very clear there are not a people able to succeed in war. So not only do we have God's own declaration, but even here as we see as the advance as well as the sliding backwards is all dependent upon whether the very promises and presence of God was fighting there for them. There is no doubt that it was God who brought their victory, not Joshua, not the people, not the failure of the Amalekites. This is the same God who has brought them out of Egypt. You think after 400 years, you think, no way is this ever going to happen. Not only gets them out away from the Egyptians, brings them through the Red Sea, they walk through on dry land, then closes the water over on the Egyptian soldiers. This is the God who's provided their drink and their food on a daily basis. And now this is the God who, even when an army come against them, has provided for them, graciously showing his care for them. He's done a fair bit, hasn't he? He's done some major significant things in front of their eyes that they can see his love and their care for them, but they keep on forgetting. Last week I challenged us all to do the same, to how much better it would be for each one of us to actually take a bit more time to stop and think the things that God has done in our lives. Because we forget them too. We forget the ways in which he's cared for us in our past and, and because that we enter into a similar situation in the future and we forget to bank on the God has provided for us in the past. But not only learn from our own experiences, what we see how God has provided for his people in the past in the scriptures is also designed to be an example A warning and an encouragement to us, we're told by Paul in 1 Corinthians 10. A third thing is the saved need to remember, verses 14 and 16. When God acts in the world, he doesn't act just so that we might be a little bit amazed, as though we might just go, whew, that was pretty exciting, I never thought he'd pull that one off. All of God's acts are designed for one purpose for the display of his glory, that we might see something of his nature, something of his character. We would do well to remember his acts, as would of Israel. The Lord says to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out from the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Now, God actually tells him, write this down. You need to remember this as a memorial. Now, I'm presuming the the book of Exodus isn't that. It's probably written somewhere else that we don't have a record of ourselves. But it's not only to be written down, it's to be told to Joshua. 
Joshua ends up leading them at many places. The only problem is you get to Numbers chapter 13 and 14, the 12 spies get sent into the, the promised land to go check it out. Joshua and Caleb come back and say, the land's good, we should do it, God has got this covered. But there's 10 others who look upon the people and think they are too fierce. There is no way we can prevail. When you read through Numbers 13 and 14, have a guess who one of the predominant groups is that they say that they can't prevail against. The Amalekites. The very group that God says, write this down as a reminder, I'm going to blot out the Amalekites. How quickly they forget what God has said in the past and how quickly they forget that God is faithful to his promises. Joshua and Caleb believed fully. The people said, let's go back to Egypt. It grieved Joshua so much that he tears his clothes and says this to the people. He's, the land which we pass through to spite out is exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into the land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bred for us. The protection is removed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. He's pretty clear. There's a repetition there. Do not fear the people. And there's good reason not to fear the people because God has said, I will blot them out completely, their name from under heaven. But the people forget. They look at what they can merely see with their eyes. They weigh things up in their own mind and think, too hard. From a circumstantial point of view, it probably would have been too hard. But they forget who their God is and they forget what their God has promised. And when you read through those chapters, the result of that rejection is another 38 years wandering around in the wilderness. Plus, at this point in time, it is stated that every person alive that time, 20 years or above, is told they will never enter into the promised land. If only they'd remembered God's promise regarding the Amalekites. But the memory of this battle is not just something to be written down. We're told Moses also makes an altar. Now, when you hear altar, don't automatically think something you put sacrifices on. But a lot of the times as the Israelites are journeying through the wilderness, they are setting up altars as little reminders, a way of saying, God has helped us in this place. And as he sets up an altar, he calls it, the Lord is my banner. So if you're wondering what that picture was they had at the beginning, it was a very poor connection. It was just something that had banners in it. No, they didn't fight the Amalekites on a nice pristine beach while getting a suntan. That was just the first picture I happened to find. But this word that's translated as, as a banner was like the, the symbol of something where it should be a piece of material on a pole which would have the emblem of the army. It would be a sign of your identity, of who you belong to. It would give you your bearings during a time of war. And as long as that banner was still standing, you knew the, the war had not been lost. And so he sets up this altar as a reminder that our God provided. He is the one. He is unbeatable. We're told in verse 6, as long as Moses' hand was raised, it came with the full power and authority of the throne of God and that is why they prevailed. But reminders are only good if they serve the purpose of reminding you, aren't they? Now, I don't often use Sesame Street illustrations, but I remember as a little kid there was some Bert and Ernie sketch where I don't know which one had a little bit of string tied around all of his fingers. 
And you know, this one here was to remind him about this one here, was to remind him about this one here, about this one here. And this was the thing that was to be remembered. But when he got to that one, he couldn't actually remember what the first bit of string on his hand was supposed to remind him to do. Now, we probably don't tie bits of string on our hand to remind things. Haven't seen too many around the room. Um, I, did, I, th- I think Lauren's seen the episode based on her uh, reaction earlier on. But how often do you put a reminder in your phone and think, this is coming up, I'm going to put it in my calendar. That's only useful if you look at it, isn't it? I've set things in my calendar, then you know they're often set to give you a reminder half an hour before the event, and that reminder comes up, and you're not even within half an hour of where that event's taking place. Sometimes you're not even in the country that event's taking place. Or you've left your phone at home, you come back and you find a reminder of something you're supposed to have done four hours ago. Reminders are only good if they remind you what they're supposed to remind you of. Clearly, people didn't remember these promises. Despite the altar, despite it being written down. Come Numbers 13 and 14, they refused to go into the promised land because they thought they could not conquer the Amalekites. It's not until you get to 1 Samuel 15, Saul has another go. But he decides to change the rules, says, nah, but I'll let the king go. It's not actually till 1 Samuel 30 that this promise comes to complete fruition under David that the Amalekites are completely wiped out as a people group. And you might think, why is God so bent on, on picking on one particular group and wiping out completely, particularly further down the track when they had nothing to do with it? Let's look back again to what we read earlier in chapter 25 of Deuteronomy. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came to Egypt? How he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary, cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. I mean, ultimately on the big grand scale, failing to fear God does result in death and destruction. But it's not just a general principle that applies to every single person. What is specific about the, the Amalekites is every time we see them come onto the stage in, within the scriptures, they're not only failing to fear God, but actually opposing and standing in opposition to God and his plans, as were uh, the Egyptians as expressed through Pharaoh. On this occasion, there's, they're coming where God has saved the people who are on their way to Sinai and trying to prevent them going there. And in Numbers 13, trying to hinder them as they're on their way to the fulfilment of entering into that promised land. So how does this make sense? Other than lifting up hands, which I don't think we're going to be doing. In our school of preachers training, we always say, you need to recognise what the author's original meaning was. And you also need to look for, are there timeless principles? What do you do with a passage like this? Raise our hands in battle? I've seen all sorts of creative little ideas put forward as everyone's trying to struggle to think, okay, it's profitable. How do we make it profitable? Some people want to say, oh, well, Moses is praying because it says praying with holy hands lifted high. There's no indication that Moses is praying. Well, then there's others who want to put Jesus and the gospel at the centre of the scriptures, which you should. But sometimes you, you, you stretch it too far to try and make it that way. And they say, well, their salvation happened because his hand was stretched out like Jesus' hands were stretched out. I don't think Moses was trying to make that as a direct connection. But if there's anything that helps us from the context, they have just been saved out of Egypt. 
That great saving act of God has just happened. We've already raised the question, if a saved people enter into hardship, have they been saved to something better? Is God caring for the people that he has saved? In other words, is circumstantial suffering a measure by which we can determine whether or not God loves us, that God loves a people he saves? The quick answer to that question is no. But both Jesus and the New Testament authors pick up on the, the, the analogy of the historical events of the Exodus and they say they point us forward to a greater saving work of God. Through Jesus and his resurrection. Can we consider suffering to be an indication of God's love or God's lack of love? The Father loves the Son. Did Jesus have a pristine life No difficulty, no suffering, I think not. He experienced suffering like we will never know. The apostles likewise suffered greatly because of their relationship to Jesus. And guess what? The apostles never once said, God doesn't love me, look how terrible my life has turned out. Never once did they say, this isn't the God who saved us, he's supposed to make everything easy. Never once did they charge God with failing to provide care and duty. Matter of fact, I'll tell you what the apostles had to say as to whether or not they were saved to something better. This is how Paul words it. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Paul says, anything I had before, I count them as rubbish. Or if you've got a King James, I count them as dung. Have I been saved to something better? You bet. Everything else I consider to be dung. Useless. Rubbish. For the Israelites have been treated ruthlessly as slaves. God has miraculously, not because they've earned it, called them out and provided the salvation, provided for them every step along the way. His presence, they've seen him as he's been there in the cloud and the pillar of fire. They've seen his miraculous works. They've seen his daily provision of the manna and the quail and all these things, protected them in war. How on earth can they say they have not been saved into something better? I think they just don't like the unknown. I think sometimes we don't like the unknown. We'd rather be in something that is negative where we know what's going to happen rather than to trust God with what we don't know what's going to happen. And if we search ourselves honestly, we may have been tempted to say the same. We may have been tempted to say, I was better off before. We may have even gone so far to say, maybe God doesn't care about me. Maybe God doesn't love me or or I wouldn't be in this situation. Let me give you... A little lesson about our emotions. Our emotions, they may be wonderful to, to cause us to act in particular ways, but they're often not very intelligent, are they? They're not, not always very good at dealing with facts. Sometimes I'm a bit more of a visual person, so I just want to have a to think about this idea of the before and after, how, what we're saved from, what we're saved to, and where do our difficulties and any problems that come into our life put them in their right perspective? 
Because this is where we were beforehand. The before was we were hostile towards our creator, therefore under his judgment, guilty, facing eternal death, headed for eternal punishment without hope. Not a good situation. After those, we're forgiven, the debt's been paid, we're reconciled to God, we're given his Holy Spirit as a guarantee and the seal of our salvation. We have a certain hope of eternity with him. That seems like I've been saved to something substantially better. But how do our problems fit into it? What if, what if we're still in the, in the, what we've been saved to? Add the problem to it. I've got a problem. But I'm also in relationship to the God who says he's using all things for my good. The one who is powerful and all knowing. Or if you put it over the other side, was I better before? I've still got all these terrible things that marked as the bad state that I wanted to be rescued from. Plus I've still got the problem. Or even to put it in the best possible scenario of, of old, old state, new state, you're still hostile to God, you're still guilty of, and under his, his judgment, headed for eternal punishment, no hope. Oh, so what? I just don't have a circumstantial problem. Even if you're in pain B, you saved, you're forgiven, reconciled to God, you have a future eternity with him and you still have the problem, you are abundantly far better off. I think we need to consider this when we're contemplating the problems that we face. Whichever box it in, there's no doubt where we are better being. We are never better going back to where we were. There's no question of where's the best place to be, before or after, with God, without God. Their problem and our problem is this. Both they had false expectations. And secondly... Who knows best? They had the false expectation that if God has saved them, that he's just going to make everything smooth sailing. And then with regards to knowing what is best, you've got two options, haven't you? You've got the God who knows everything, who's all-powerful, who uses all things for your benefit, or who got us. And I'll happily say on my behalf, I'm pretty stupid. I've got very little idea of what's good for me. My life before I came to Christ is a very clear picture of what, what my best producing and it's not real pretty. For all of us Christians, if you are a Christian, if you've been saved, if you've called upon Jesus for the forgiveness of your sin, if you're trusting him and you're in that second box, you've been saved from eternal judgment. You have been passed, as, as Jesus says in John chapter 5, you have passed from death to life, not future, you have been. But when you look at all of God's major saving acts, whether it be the Exodus or whether it be God's salvation in Jesus, there's that point where you enter into salvation, but it also looks forward and points to and makes progress towards a bigger um, completion of that salvation. For the Christian today, that bigger picture that we are headed towards, the completion of that salvation which has begun, is pictured in Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be as their God. 
He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. Not only is where we presently are abundantly better, but this is where we are headed. While as a Christian you are definitely saved now, what we see here in chapter 21 of Revelation is what we look forward to. But it is not our experience now. To use John's language from 1 John 3 2, we are God's children now, but what we will be, we are not yet. Our troubles isn't a sign of God's failure. If anything, Jesus promised, in this world you will have trouble. He says, I have told you this, that you may have peace. So he reconciles the idea of peace and trouble. Not because you're going to not have trouble in your life, but you may have peace because you know who you belong to and you know where you are headed. The Israelites saved out of Egypt, yet they faced resistance as they headed towards the promised land. Happens all along the way. God's saving act is always opposition. When you come to Christ, do not think it's all going to be smooth sailing. There's not going to be opposition. Paul speaks of exactly this way, that we are saved, yes, but we are saved into a battle. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, put on the whole armour of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. It says, we do wage a war. This is what we've entered into. But to put it into context, the forces in which we deal with are created forces by God. The God has disarmed in Christ on the cross. Whereas you disarm the rulers and the authorities, put them to open shame and triumphed over them. And that same thing where Jesus says, in this world you will have troubles. He also says, but I have overcome the world. Christians, we're not to have an un- um, unfair expectations that God's going to make everything smooth and easy everywhere in our life. He doesn't promise to make every single thing easy, but he does promise to be within us, and he promises to be with us, and he promises even to use those things to build us more in our understanding of him and to be uh, more like his son, Jesus Christ. God has provided our every need. And as we see the picture from Moses out there in the battlefield, what made progress wasn't the works of men. It was when they depended upon the very power of God, then they advanced. But when their dependence was not upon God, the enemy continued to prevail. We should not be at all surprised that when we lose sight of our relationship with God, that we face resistance, that we start to dwindle back into some of the old things. The advice that that James gives us in his book regarding to resist the devil, he puts around two phrases around it. First one he says, submit to God. Then he says, resist the devil. So resist the devil's in the middle. First thing, submit to God. Then he says, draw near to God. That is the biggest protection you have is your nearness in your relationship with God. And to use the image of Joshua, 
Joshua, who knew exactly what God has promised, he went, he saw the promised land, he saw the same scary-looking things that the ten other guys saw as well. But he knew his God, he knew what his God had promised, and he said, we can enter into this. So Christian, if you are saved, never doubt it for a second, you are saved into something better already. But as we saw in Revelation 21, what we have to look forward to even into the future is even more beautiful than that as well. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you that we have so many uh, descriptions of the ways in which you've worked in this world. Uh, We thank you that we are uh, given no reason to have a uh, a, a poor expectation about what it means to live in relationship with you and, and what your salvation means. We've seen uh, so many come before us, godly men, close relationship with you, who still suffered. Yet as they suffered, they didn't see that as a sign of your lack of love or a lack of your saving, but something that was part and parcel of, of living in this world that is hostile to you. Uh, But Lord, we don't long for suffering. Uh, We long for you to make all things right. We long to see you face to face where there will be no suffering, no more death, no more tears. And Lord, we we live in the light of the joy of that moment. Uh, But Lord, we continue to press on in this world with complete dependence upon you, calling a people to know you and boldly going forth, uh, standing upon your word and your promises. And we pray that you would help us to do that and to see our circumstances in the context of who you are and what you're doing. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.